Good morning. It is good to see you. Wanted to give you guys just a words of head up, heads up. Actually, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. That's where we'll be today. Our ushers are coming to take the offering. And just so, friends, so you know, if you're a guest with us, just let those pass. Those are, we hope this worship service is a gift to you. Uh, if you are a member here, we hope that you will give sacrificially and joyfully as the scriptures command us. And that's why we take an offering each week and see us just do that. Let me remind you guys or, or share something with you that I learned about last night. Just last night, one of our partner churches in India, in Tamil Nadu, we partner with a number of churches there who are trying to reach unreached villages in India. Uh, one of them was burned to the ground uh, this week. And it was burned to the ground by Hindu radicals who decided they'd had enough of what was going on at the church. They had been hosting a vacation Bible school for the week. They'd come to the last night before the, well, the, the night before the last day. Uh, and they'd had about 100 kids who'd been coming throughout the week, learning about Jesus, the good news, that he's died and been raised from the dead so he might have life in him. They were proclaiming that boldly, fearlessly. And uh, some men decided that they didn't want the parents who were gonna come the next day to come and hear that good news as well. So they decided about 4 a.m. in the morning to burn the church to the ground. Now, the thing you need to know about that is that that happens all over the world all the time. Uh, it is not uncommon. Uh, we live in a day and an age where in many places around the world, perhaps not in our place as often with physical violence, but where there are men and women who worship our King Jesus who are doing so at great threat to their own existence even. And so I wanted you to know about that. One, because I want to just take a moment to pray uh, and ask you to pray with me here today. I think we just need to pray for our brothers and sisters. But also I want you to be reminded as we are going to talk about what it means to trust God today. How do we become a people who trust God? What does it look like? And I don't say it to lessen the circumstances that we have to trust God with. We have to, I'm sure many of you enter in here today, perhaps grieving, perhaps uh, struggling with some decisions you have to make, perhaps just wrestling with relationships that are broken, whatever it may be. Those are real situations that really require trust in God. Uh, I don't minimize those in any way, but also I want us to remember that there are situations like the ones that our brothers and sisters are facing right now in Tamil Nadu uh, where they are... Um, dealing with a place in which they really need to trust God today. So would you pray with me? Let me ask you to pray and then I'll join your prayers and just kind of bring those full circle in a moment. So pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you that you remind us in your word that those of us who are your followers are one body. And that's not just true in a local church setting, it's true across the globe that our brothers and sisters who have been under attack this week, uh, they're like our arm. How could we not care about our arm? Um, we are part of one another. And so we grieve with them, um, not just the loss of a building, but the threat that they come underneath for the sake of your name but we pray for them, Lord Jesus, that they would not shrink back, but that they would speak the truth boldly, that they would love deeply. We pray for those who have committed this action, not vengeance and retribution, although we do pray for a government that would not just turn a blind eye to these injustices. We pray for justice there and godly leadership. But for those who have committed this act, we don't pray vengeance and retribution. We pray salvation. 
We pray that they would come to know the hope of the living God. We pray that they would see in their actions foolishness and that they would turn and repent and find life in you, Jesus. We pray that you would cause the the message of the gospel on the lips of your people who are under persecution to resound loudly in the ears of those who hear it. We do pray your protection. We pray that you would cause your kingdom to go forward. As we turn our attention to your word now, Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us, that you would teach and instruct us, that you give me your words to speak and help me to speak what is true and right and good. We pray, Father, that you would teach us how to trust you. You are trustworthy. You never change. All your ways are perfect and right. So you are worthy of trust and teach us how to trust because we admit and and we say that we are foolish when we trust ourselves, but we admit that we do it often. So help us not to trust ourselves or money or status and prestige or intellect. Help us not to trust in these things. Help us to trust in you. Teach us how. Give us power to trust. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, like I said, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 18. I want to tell you the story of a king named Hezekiah. And I don't know if you've been in church a while. You might be familiar with it. Uh, If you can, just kind of set the stage, insert yourself into the history here for a moment. If you can imagine being a king or a queen over a small nation, it's a nation of people who are not mighty, but whom you love and you care much for them. And as king or queen, your job, uh, if you've led anything, you know, is to care for those whom you lead. And so you have the daily pressure of making decisions about economics and foreign policy and generally how to create thriving for your people, how to make it how to make it a society where your people thrive and there's justice and righteousness. In addition to that, now you hear a whisper of a rumor somewhere in the distance that there is an army on the way to your gates and they're on the way because of a decision that you've made. And you're aware that every decision you make affects not just you, but your people. And so now here comes this army. And it's not just any army. It's the largest army in the known world. They outnumber you by a hundred times. They are not there yet, but you know, as sure as the sun will rise, if it's not today and not tomorrow, it will come. And when it comes, it will come from an army that is known, not just for conquering peoples all over the globe, but that is known for their merciless acts of torture and torment. That they don't just take a group of people, they take a group of people and they beat them into submission. This is the army that is on their way to your gates. And then one morning you wake up and sure enough, there they are like locusts on the field. They have surrounded your city and you are at their mercy. And the question you must ask yourself is, how do I trust God now? What do I do now? Well, you probably haven't had an army outside the gates anytime recently. But my guess is you've had some situations that felt a lot like an army at the gates. And you've wondered, what do I do? And how do I trust God? Well, Hezekiah, facing the army of Assyria, has a lot to teach us about how it is that we trust God in difficult circumstances. Now keep in mind, we might say we trust God, but trust the rubber meets the road with trust when we encounter difficult circumstances. Right, church? When things get hard, that's where our trust gets measured. And so... This story in the Old Testament refers to this word trust more than any other time. In these two chapters, there will be 10 allusions to the idea of trusting God more than any other place in the Old Testament. So 
I thought it was a good place to look when we wanted to examine what does it look like to trust God. Now, these are long chapters, so let me do this for you. I'm gonna break it into chunks. We'll read a few verses, and then we'll talk a little bit. We'll read a few verses and talk a little bit. Sound like a good plan? All right, good. If it doesn't sound like a good plan, sorry, that's the plan. All right, so chapter 18, verses one through eight. Look with me, if you will. Let's read those first eight verses. They say this. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among, all, nor among those who were before him for he had fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Okay, so hit the pause button right there. Let me give you a little bit of historical background because you may not be familiar with Israelite history and so it may help you to get a little bit acquainted with it. You saw a lot of names and perhaps you saw those names and you thought, I'm not sure what's going on, so let me fill you in. So if you remember back in, uh, in all of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, essentially the theme of those two books put together is this, is that there is no king like God. And every king who comes to the throne will disappoint in some way. They will fail in some way. And you're foolish to look for anyone to rule you other than God. That was really the message of First and Second Kings to Israel. And so we are kind of deep into that journey of First and Second Kings. And what has happened is, uh, the first king to come on the throne of Israel was Saul. And then after Saul came David. Now those may be names you're familiar with. David ruled and was sort of considered the pinnacle king. I mean, he was the ideal king whose heart was like God's heart. And then after David, uh, Solomon rules because God made a promise to David that he would always have one of his descendants on the throne. And ultimately, Jesus is one of the descendants of David. And so after David, Solomon comes to the throne and Solomon does well sometimes and not so well sometimes. But after Solomon's reign, something pretty bad happens. The nation divides into two nations. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel, who will be ruled by certain kings, and Judah, who will be ruled by other kings. And almost all of them do more bad than good. Some do more good than bad, but all of them fail in some way. And so we're journeying through now if you follow the trend of the kings, we're pretty deep into the kings of Judah now. Now you'll notice every sort of chapter of First Kings or Second Kings usually begins by saying this king was on the throne in Israel and this king was on the throne in Judah and it dates their reigns according to who was ruling where and when. And so now we've got two separate nations and they're ruling and they have some political uh, relationship with one another, but they really, sometimes they skirmish with each other. But that's what's happening right here at the outset. So we find Hosea is on the throne of Israel and Hezekiah comes onto the throne of Judah. Now, Hezekiah's dad was Ahaz and he was the king before Hezekiah. And Ahaz was a wicked king. He was a horrible king. He made a lot of bad decisions. One of the bad decisions that he made 
was to make an alliance with the nation of Assyria. Now, he had, had, he had been prompted to do that because there had been some other kingdoms who were smaller who said to him, Ahaz, we want to go up against Assyria. Why don't you join with us? But, Assyria, but instead of, Assyria being the kind of big boy on the block, instead of siding with them and warring against Assyria, Ahaz went to Assyria and told on the other kingdoms. Kind of like a, you won't believe what they're about to do. Right, and so he tattles on them. They crush them, and then they say to Ahaz, well, you're gonna have to pay us money, sort of mobster style, right? You're gonna have to pay us money to keep us out of your country. We thank you for telling us, uh, but don't think that you're like in our good graces. You're gonna have to pay us tribute. So Hezekiah inherits from Ahaz this tribute that he is paying now to Assyria. And if you notice in verse seven, it said that he rebelled against Assyria and stopped paying tribute to them. So Assyria is a massive kingdom. They rule over most of the known world. And Judah, this little inconsequential nothing country, decides we're not gonna pay anymore. That's what Hezekiah decides. And so we'll see if that's a good decision or a bad decision in just a moment, right? And so that's what Hezekiah does. Now imagine, too, that you come to the throne. Did you notice how old Hezekiah was when he came to the throne? He's 25 years old. So he is taking on the weight of leading God's people at 25 years old. Now he reigns for 29 years. That's a pretty long reign for any of the kings of Judah or Israel, which tips your hand that he does pretty well. Now the thing that's most important in all of these first eight verses is the description of Hezekiah because he is described as one who does what? who does the will of the Lord. He trusts God and is a king that pleases God. Now, what's so surprising about that is as you work through First and Second Kings, the thing that you find is that the kings just essentially get worse. One gets worse after the other, after the other, after the other, because the general message is, look, this is what happens when you trust in human kings rather than trusting in the king of kings and lord of lords. This is what happens. So at this late date, we're a little surprised at Hezekiah to find that Hezekiah is described as doing well. More than that, he's described as being a king who is better than all who came before him and better than all who what? Come after him. So that's a really remarkable description of Hezekiah, that he's a man who trusts God and obeys him. He does something very important. It says he tears down the high places, which were essentially places where idols were worshipped. So this, these Asherah poles were places where this god Asherah was worshipped. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? Israel, Judah, they worship the one true God. And so for him to tear those down seems like it would be no big deal. But you got to understand, at this point in the nation's history, there are myriads of people who are not worshiping the one true God. There are whole sections of people who are worshiping these different gods and he's tearing down their places of worship. So in other words, he's essentially doing something that's very politically not helpful to him, right? So instead of just, instead of just kind of going, well, they exist, I'll let them go. Even all the other kings that are described as being good kings up to this point in Judah, it says none of them tore down the high places. It's, we're told they were good, but they weren't able to do this. This is sort of the pinnacle of what the king should have been doing. And Hezekiah does it. He tears down the high places, even at a political cost to himself. So he's making great decisions. He's trusting God. Now here's where I think the lesson is for us in all of those first eight verses. It's this, when it comes to trusting God. I think we need to see that it is faithfulness that produces greater trust in God. When we are faithful, it produces greater trust in God. Now, relate that back to what we said last week, because if you heard last week, we talked about faithfulness. Like, what does it look like to be a faithful person? And what's important maybe to connect the dots on is that we said last week that God makes all these promises to us, and those promises cause our trust in him to grow. And when we trust him, then we respond with faithfulness. That's a pretty normal order of things, right? When you trust God, you're faithful to God. Would you all agree? 
Yeah, so trust and then you're faithful. But what this text is telling us is that it works in reverse as well. So kind of complete the cycle. It's not just that we trust God and then we're faithful to God because we trust him. Also, when we are faithful, it makes us trust him more. That's what's happening with Hezekiah. Everything that we're about to see unfold in Hezekiah's life, he is making faithful choices right now to put away the high places, to do the things that God has commanded him as a king to do. And because he's doing them, he is building a reservoir of trust in God that will enable him to trust him in a really hard moment that's about to come. Now, what I want us to get from that church, family, I want you to understand that when you are doing small faithful things, when you are being faithful in your workplace, when you're being faithful in your family, it's not just to get an out of boy or an out of girl and a pat on the back from God. You are building a reservoir of trust in God so that when it gets really hard, that reservoir is there to draw on. You with me? If you want to trust God, don't just say, I'll be faithful when I trust him. Start to be faithful and you will learn to trust him. That's the message of Hezekiah right here in these first eight verses. He's faithfully doing what God gave him to do, obeying God's commands, and it's making him able to trust God in what's about to happen. So let me summarize the next couple of verses for you. Just verses nine through 12, uh, rather than just read every verse to you because these are long chapters. Here's what we learn happens in verses nine through 12. Assyria turns its attention to Israel, the northern kingdom, Right, so we've got Judah down here. Hezekiah is king of Judah. Hosea is king of Israel. Well, in 722 BC, Assyria invades and conquers Israel. There will be no more kings on the throne of Israel. That is it. They are done. They have been conquered by Assyria, carted off into um, carted off into Assyria to live in exile now, and the nation ceases to exist. It just gets overwhelmed and subsumed by Assyria. Now, imagine you're Hezekiah and you're watching, essentially your blood relatives, Israel is your blood relatives. You're watching them get carted off into slavery, right? How are you feeling at that moment? Perhaps a little wary, perhaps a little nervous, right? So that's what happens in verses nine through 12. And several years go by now, relatively quiet. They're continuing to not pay tribute to Assyria, thinking maybe, maybe we're gonna get away with this. And then we find out differently. Starting in verse 13, look with me. Let's read it together. Verses 13 through 18. Let's look at that section. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so that's 10 years later now, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, those are titles, not names, by the way. Don't think about naming your kids those things. With a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. 
Okay, so let's pause and let's just see what's going by, what's going on here. Now, as I said, 10 years have gone by. Assyria has been busy fighting other battles, so they haven't paid much attention to Judah. As I said, Judah is really of no consequence on the world scene. There's no one looking at Judah and going, they're a real threat to Assyria or to anyone else for that matter. They're kind of a nobody. And so Assyria's been ignoring them, not worrying about the fact that they haven't been paying tribute. And the reason they can ignore them is because they've got better things to deal with. And so they're fighting these battles and attempting to conquer these other places. Finally, Assyria does that. And so their attention turns to Judah now. They're not going to let Judah go unpunished for not paying tribute as they were required to pay. So they show up in Judah. They take all of the important cities. You notice that it said they took every fortified city that Judah had. So other than Jerusalem, Every city has fallen. So you're Hezekiah now. You're sitting back in Jerusalem on your throne and you're watching. You're getting messages. Oh, this city has fallen. This city has fallen. This city has fallen. It is not looking good. You're beginning to wonder, okay, God, where are you? Have you wondered that before? Where are you? It's not looking good. So it says he sends messengers to Sennacherib, that's the king of Assyria, when he's at Lachish. Now that's, a, that's kind of the last fortified city that's gonna fall. It's a very key city in the nation of Judah. And so the armies are aligning as that they are in the process of taking over Lachish, at which point, you know, maybe if we could summarize Hezekiah's message to uh, the king of Assyria, it's, hey, my bad, right? Like, hey, I'm, my mistake. Please, can we just... Can we just kind of cease and desist here? Can we, whatever you tell me to pay, I will pay. I want to be done with this. This is not looking good, right? He's essentially trying to keep him from getting to Jerusalem and conquered, conquering Jerusalem. And so the, you, the king sends back messenger, king, the king of Syria, Sennacherib, sends back messengers saying, hey, you got to pay X amount of money. Did you notice where the money came from? He paid him a bunch of silver and then he stripped the doorposts of the temple of their gold. Now, if you've read the book of Exodus and the description of how the temple was supposed to be built, right? When Solomon builds the temple, the Lord says, this is what it's supposed to be built like. This is what it's supposed to look like. That involved gold being around the doorposts of the temple. And so he's essentially just saying, all right, God, we don't have time to obey your word anymore. We don't have time to cause the temple to look the way you want it to look. We just gotta get some gold and we gotta get it fast. And this is the only place we got gold. So we're just gonna strip the doorposts and we're gonna send the gold. And you know, kind of fingers crossed. We're hoping that's gonna send them away. Does it send them away? No, it never works, guys. <laughs> Paying ransom to people who don't want you to trust God, it never works. People who want to scare you into not obeying God, it never works to try and appease them because they essentially say, look, you know, like any good mobster would, right? We can't let you get away with this because then the other countries are gonna hear about it and they're just gonna think we're soft and so, you know, they'll rebel too. So we're just gonna have to crush you. So they take the money and they show up at the gates of Jerusalem anyway. So it says that these, uh, these the Rab Saris, the Rab Shekay, the Tartan, they all show up. <coughs> Those are political and military titles of Assyrian uh, rulers. And they are kind of, what we're meant to know by that is that these are some of the chief rulers in all the nation. So they mean business. They've sent, the, they've sent guys with power and authority to actually declare things. And they now come with a large army and they surround they surround the walls of Jerusalem. So now that's where we find ourselves. Here's the thing I want us to learn about trusting God from this moment. And it's actually one of my favorite moments in the story. Even though Hezekiah is trying to buy his way out of trouble, what I love about it is that Hezekiah fails to trust God in this moment. But what we can learn from that is that even our moments of not trusting God don't have to define us. Our moments of not trusting God don't have to define us. Because remember, this whole story was written after all this occurred. And how was he described in the first eight verses? 
as being a faithful king, as being a king who chose to trust God and do what was right. That's how he's described, in spite of the fact that he fails to trust God in this moment to deliver him. Friends, one of the biggest things that I see happen again and again is we have a moment of failing to trust God and then we, because we failed to trust God in that moment, rather than say, okay, I will trust him in the next moment, we sort of, either because of shame or for maybe any variety of reasons, we say, well, we kind of throw our hands up and say, I, I guess I haven't trusted him. What am I gonna do now? And so we just, we have that moment and it propels us into future moments of failing to trust God. You've been there, right? You didn't trust him one time and you thought, well, it's all kind of lost now. And so you didn't trust again and then you didn't trust again. And the thing I wanna say, friends, is those moments of lacking trust in God, they don't have to define you. You can, choose, you can always choose to trust God in the next moment in spite of failing to trust him in the last one. There is always an opportunity to choose trust in God. I think that's the message of this little section of the story of Hezekiah. It encourages me greatly because there have been too many moments where I have failed to trust God, where I have lost faith, where I have not seen how I was gonna be delivered from the army at my gates. And I am so thankful in the mercy of our God who says you can choose to trust me the next time. Now, read with me verses 19 through 25. Let's look at what happens next. The armies are at the gates and we'll see what they say. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Okay, so here's what's happened now. The the representative of the king of Assyria essentially gives a speech to these representatives of Hezekiah and says to them, essentially, I, let me intimidate you into not trusting in God because, look, there's no way that you're gonna make it out of this alive is essentially the message. Now, I don't know if you noticed essentially kind of the way in which he approached that, but essentially he said some things that were true, not untrue, right? He said, you are trusting in Egypt and that's exactly what had happened. Hezekiah, rather than trusting the Lord, had made an alliance with Egypt. And he says, Egypt is a broken staff. You can, he says, if, you, if they were a cane and you were leaning on them, they would snap and you would fall because they cannot be trusted, and he's not wrong. Pharaoh was nowhere to be found. There was no help coming from Egypt. His alliance with Egypt was a fool's errand. And so he points out rightly that you are trusting in the wrong thing. Now, the next thing he says after he talks about the alliance with Egypt, he says after that, and are you trusting in God? Because this is, and this is where, friends, he shows his lack of understanding. Because he says, didn't you just tear down all the altars of worship to some of the gods that you should be worshiping? How do you, can you expect that they're going to protect you? And do you see where he doesn't understand? 
Because what he doesn't understand is that Israel is not like all the other nations that they have conquered, that worship multiple gods and believe that they need to sort of have a tradition towards this God and a tradition towards that God and an altar towards this God and an altar towards that God. He doesn't know that Judah worships the one true living God. And so he says, you've torn down his high places and you've offended him by doing it. But Hezekiah knows differently because he knows that that was an act of faithfulness. The third thing that he says, and this is perhaps the most astounding, because the Assyrians did not worship the same God that Judah worshiped. But what does he say at the very end? Don't you know that it's your God who sent me here to destroy you? You might think you're working for God. You're working against God. You should just lay down your weapons now. Now, here's what I find so interesting about that. I think the three things that the Rabshakeh does to try and intimidate Hezekiah into not trusting God are the same things that happen to us. Now, here's what we can know. Anytime that you are going to trust God, there will be people who will tell you that it is foolish to do so. Don't you know that? Anytime you choose to trust God, there will always be someone who says, dude, you are an idiot for doing that. I can't believe you would trust God. That's foolishness. You should be trusting your intellect. You should be trusting what science tells you. You should be trusting this or you should be trusting that. All of this trusting God stuff, that's, that's a fool's errand. It's gonna produce only heartache for you. But friends, if you're gonna trust him, you need to know there will always be someone to tell you not to trust him. And they'll give reasons. Listen to the three reasons that are given here because I think they still hold true for us today. The first one is essentially the Rabshakeh saying, if God wanted you to do this, he would have made you stronger. He would have given you the power to accomplish it. But don't the people of God know that that's not how God works? When God wants us to accomplish something, he doesn't make us stronger in order to accomplish it. He makes us weaker so that when it's accomplished, he gets the glory because he's the one that will do it. The second thing he does essentially is to say, you've done too many bad and too many foolish things to think that God's gonna come to your rescue. You have done, you've made this alliance with Egypt and I think that still holds true today. How often does someone who doesn't want us to trust God say to us, look, you have been too bad and too foolish and by the way, they're not wrong most of the time. We have been too bad and too foolish but God is merciful and when we as his people trust in him, he comes to our aid but we will be told again and again that we should not expect God's provision when we trust him because we have been too bad or too foolish. And then lastly, that bold, and this happens, someone telling us, you think you're working for God, you're actually working against him. Now this is one that our culture loves to pull on this all the time, doesn't it? The people of our culture love to tell us, you are on the wrong side of history. You think that you're serving God by being faithful to his word when in actuality you need to reinterpret his word so that you can get on board with the cultural orthodoxy of the day because that's truly the people that are serving God as people who are doing these things. You will always find people who will tell you when you are trying to be faithful to God that you are actually going against the purposes of God. And friends, that's hard, that's hard to know if they're, being, if they're right or if they're not, isn't it? And so we're gonna find what Hezekiah does that helps us understand how we can know that when someone lobs that assault at us, what we can do to be assured that we are in fact serving God and not thwarting his purposes. Here's what happens next in verses 26 through 37. I'm just gonna tell them to you. The Rabshakeh attempts to turn Hezekiah's people against him. So there's this moment where the, the spokesmen of Hezekiah are at the gates and they say, hey, uh, if you could speak to us not in Hebrew, that would be great because what you're saying is really scary and all the people inside hear you. 
and we don't want them to hear you because it's gonna be too much for them. To which the Rabshakeh says, look, it's not you that's gonna be in deep trouble. I mean, you are gonna be in deep trouble, but it's gonna be them too. So I'm gonna continue to speak loud. So what he's essentially doing is saying, I'm gonna tell them what's gonna happen to them because I want them to convince the king that he needs to surrender and come out rather than trust in God. So he's essentially trying to turn his own people against him. Now, the beautiful, there's a beautiful moment at the end of this little section where the Rabshakeh tells them, like, it's gonna get real bad for you all. Like, you need to lay it down and come out, right? But there's this beautiful moment where Hezekiah said to the people, remember, good King Hezekiah has said to the people, don't respond when you hear them talk to you. When they taunt you, say nothing. And the people trust Hezekiah and follow his leadership, and they say nothing. They say nothing to these taunts that are meant to cause their hearts to melt with fear. So you get this sense that they are steadfast, and I love that. Now, so that takes us to chapter 19, verses, starting in verse one. Let's read verses one through seven. Let's see where the story goes now, okay? So it's picking up steam. So far, we pretty much only had negative things going on. Verse one, chapter 19 says, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the, the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. All right, so these verses are our first bit of good news, yes? Absolutely, our first bit of good news is the army has surrounded the city. So Here's what happens. Hezekiah tears his clothes, and this isn't just like a, I'm upset sort of a thing. This is an act of repentance in the ancient world. Hezekiah is recognizing, I have made a foolish choice as king to essentially uh, try and rely on Egypt and to try and then buy off Assyria. It's not gonna work, and he repents of that. So he, he tears his garments. He's acted foolishly, and he knows it. That's a key moment in Hezekiah's life right there. Then he seeks God's prophet, Isaiah. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, you know there's a whole book called Isaiah written by the prophet Isaiah, and it takes place during this time. So if you read Isaiah, there's actually another account of this very story in the book of Isaiah from Isaiah's perspective about what was happening, what was going on. And Isaiah goes to the Lord in prayer, and he gets great news from the Lord. Now, you notice there's this phrase, thus says the Lord there. Now, you know, you might read that and kind of gloss over it, but it's important for us to remember that particular for an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, someone who was tabbed out by God to represent him, to speak to the people on behalf of God, that he's not just saying, hey, I've got some advice for you. When he says, thus says the Lord, he's saying, God has spoken to me and I am speaking to you. 
He is staking his entire reputation as a prophet and even his life, according to Old Testament law, on the fact that what he says will come to pass. Because if what he says does not come to pass, he reveals himself to be a false prophet. So he says, thus says the Lord to ensure Hezekiah, this is not me speaking, this is God speaking. And this is what he says. And the message is a good one, right? He says, I'm gonna send a rumor. Sennacherib is gonna turn his army back. Essentially, the Rabshakeh is gonna turn back. He's gonna head home. And then the king is gonna die in his own country. So you don't have to fear. So that's good news that Hezekiah gives. So here's what I think is important for us to recognize from that. It's two things, right? Number one, the first thing Hezekiah does when he is hearing the message from the Rabshakeh about how bad it's about to get is that he repents and he goes to the Lord's house to pray. That's the first thing he does. Friends, if you want to trust God, there's no substitute for prayer. There is no, there is no pathway to trusting God that does not lead through prayer. So when you face the army at the gates, you have to pray. You have to pray and pray again and pray some more. And then when you get tired of praying, guess what? Pray some more. Never stop praying. There is no pathway to trusting God that does not go through prayer. That's the first thing Hezekiah does. Then the next thing he does, which is so wise, and it's how he knows that he is actually performing the will of God and not just forsaking God like the Rabshakeh wants him to believe, right, with his taunts. He finds the person who has always spoken God's truth to him and he seeks their counsel. He seeks the counsel of the person who has always spoken God's truth to him. Now that's, here, here's what's so important about that, friends. Is in this moment, it'd be so tempting for him to just seek out yes men who would speak to him sort of empty platitudes that would make him feel better. Right, But he knows Isaiah is not one of these. Isaiah is not a guy who has spoken to Hezekiah in the past and just sort of told him what he wanted to hear. He didn't just as a leader surround himself with yes men. He goes to the prophet of God and he says, we need a word from the Lord. What does he say about this? I need not just, I don't just need to feel better emotionally. I don't just need empty platitudes or sentimentality. I need someone who would tell me what is true right now. And friends, I want you to know that if you want to trust God in your toughest moments, you're going to have to surround yourself with truth tellers. You're going to have to seek out people who will tell you the truth about your worst actions, about your most foolish actions, about the things that please and don't please God. So when you are up against it, ask yourself this question, who has always been unafraid to speak the truth of God to me? Who has done so boldly and willingly and yes, lovingly, but who has spoken the truth to me, not just what they thought I wanted to hear. Those are the people you need in your hardest moments when you don't want to trust and when it's hard to trust. Now what happens in the next verses, verses eight through 13, is that true to Isaiah's word, okay? So Isaiah has said he'll hear a rumor and sure enough, the Rabshakeh finds out that his king is in another location fighting against another army. And so he leaves to go join Sennacherib to help him in that battle. But in case he think, in case Hezekiah might think that all is going to be well and hey, look, they went away, he does two things. He leaves the army in place and he sends Hezekiah a note to say to him, don't think that you're out from underneath this just yet. It's still gonna come to you. And here's what happens next. So this is the note then. Or not the note, sorry. But after he gets the note in verse 14 of chapter 19, Hezekiah reads it. So it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So again, he goes to prayer. 
And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah responds by going to prayer again. And you notice this prayer is not so much one of repentance anymore. This is now calling upon God to defend his own name. He's saying to God, I know that your chief end is your glory. And my chief end, our chief end as your people is your glory. And we are asking you to save us from the hand of this king to display that you are the one true God. He appeals to God's glory as the reason why he wants him to save him. And friends, I think the lesson to be learned there is that it's a simple one, is that God's glory must be our chief end if we want to learn to trust him. I hope that you've recognized that if you establish in your heart and your mind in days where it's easy to trust God, that God's glory is your chief purpose for existing and nothing else is more paramount than that in life, that when it comes time to trust him, that that target, that aim that you have set for yourself of God's glory in my life is my ambition, my chief ambition. When you've established that and everything else is secondary to that, then you will trust God in your hardest moments because it glorifies him to trust him. And when his glory is paramount, everything else falls in line underneath it. We've got to learn to be a people who establish at our earliest days, that we want to trust God because we want to glorify God. That's our chief end. That's our chief aim. Now, the last thing, friends, that happens, and I'll just summarize for the sake of time here, is that God responds through Isaiah to Hezekiah's prayer. And he says to him, don't worry. The king, Sennacherib, will not shoot a single arrow over the wall of Jerusalem. He will not come into the city. He will come nowhere near it. I've already told you that he'll hear a rumor and go back to his own country and he'll be murdered there. But not only am I gonna tell you that, I'm gonna tell you that his army will go away. And then after God declares that, he sends an angel who massacres 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the middle of the night. They wake up the next day, they pack up camp, and they head out of town. God delivers his people. By the way, if you look at the history, here's what's remarkable. Isaiah prophesies that Sennacherib will be killed by the sword in his own land. Guess what happens at the end of this text? What we find out is that his own son kills him because he doesn't establish him as his successor on the throne. So Isaiah tells us that's gonna happen years before it ever happens, and then it happens. You can look it up in the history books. That's how Sennacherib dies. His son kills him while he's worshiping his own God in his temple. The other thing that's so fascinating is that there are historical references in ancient literature to the Assyrian army encamping around a city and a supernatural event occurring. They don't say what, they just say a supernatural event occurred and then they left. That's literally written down, historically verifiable fact that this occurred. It sounds like one of those things that people look at and just go, oh, that's a nice little story. It's not a story. 
This happened. Now, if you're sitting in Judah and the next day you wake up and the Assyrian army is gone and 185,000 are laid out dead, are you a little confident in God at that point? God shows up on the scene. So that's how Hezekiah learns to trust God. Now, by the way, here's what I would say to us. We have got to know and trust that our God is sovereign over all of human history. And we've got to know our history of how God defends his people. Because stories like this embolden us to trust God in our toughest circumstances. That's what they do. They teach us, and by the way, friends, don't buy any brand of theology that does not teach you that God is sovereign over all that occurs. They may sound nice for a time. They may sound like they release God from being able to have to deal with evil and other difficulties, but they don't solve a thing. You need a God who is sovereign over all that occurs under the sun. And when you have that God and you worship him, you have a God you can trust. If you wanna trust God, you must believe that he is sovereign over all that happens. Now, the last thing that Hezekiah shows us is actually that Hezekiah is not our ultimate example. Hezekiah points us to a true and better Hezekiah, a king who was threatened not by having his city surrounded by an Assyrian army, a great army, but whose kingdom was surrounded by the enemies of sin and death and who trusted God all the way to the end, even when sin and death were allowed to swarm the city and conquer this king. And then God raised him in glory on the third day in victory to declare once and for all that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Our true and better Hezekiah who trusted the Lord perfectly at all times and God saw fit to give him the name that is above every name that his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. He is our king. And when God allows the armies that surround our gates to swarm those gates, we remember that we have a king who went through death and came out the other side victorious. And because he did and because we believe in him, we have a God in whom we can trust. In our worst days, in our hardest days, we have a true and better Hezekiah. That's who Hezekiah is meant to teach us about. He's not just an example. He points us to our king who saves us and redeems us. Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, you are a true and better Hezekiah. We thank you for your faithful servant who showed us what it looked like to trust you in a very difficult circumstance. And we ask you to help us trust you in a very difficult circumstance. We know that he points us to you. You are the one. You trusted the Father perfectly. You went to the cross. You were overwhelmed by sin and death and then you conquered them so that we might know that we have a God that can be trusted. You are not indifferent towards our circumstances because you have been in them. You are not indifferent towards our suffering and our pain and our isolation and our fear. You're not indifferent to any of those things because you came and walked among us. But then you showed us that you can be trusted because you reign forever at the right hand of the Father. And we can't wait for the day that you come back, Lord. Oh, how we want you to come back. We can't wait for that day. Teach us from now until that day to trust you. We want to trust you. So show us how. Guide and direct us. We are yours. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.